Welcome to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast, where healthcare meets business, with your host, me, Dr. Karen Litzy. And just as a reminder, the information in this podcast is for entertainment purposes only and is not to be used as personalized medical advice. Enjoy the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Healthy, Wealthy, and Smart podcast. I am your host, Dr. Karen Litzy, and today we are going to be talking about physical therapy in the emergency department. Yes, there are physical therapists posted in emergency departments in hospitals around the country, and my guest today is one of those people. So I'm really happy to have on the podcast, Dr. Rebecca Griffith. She specializes in care in the emergency department. Dr. Griffith believes physical therapist practice in the emergency department is a critical way to move upstream in healthcare that supports patients during their most critical moments. Dr. Griffith has been an invited lecturer, regular presenter, podcast guest, and article contributor on this topic. Additionally, she was instrumental in passing two motions within the APTA House of Delegates in support of emergency physical therapist practice and is a founding member of the Emergency PT Steering Committee within the Academy of Acute Care. The EDDPT will prepare you to successfully practice in the emergency department so that patients have access to the right provider at a critical moment in their healthcare journey. And today, we talk about the work she does in the emergency department and how you, if you are a physical therapist working in an acute care hospital, how you can start uh, a program for physical therapy in the emergency department in your hospital. So a big thanks to Rebecca and everyone enjoy today's episode. Hi, Rebecca. Welcome to the podcast. I'm excited to have you on to talk about physical therapy in the emergency room or the emergency department. So welcome. Thank you. I'm so happy to be here. I appreciate it. Yeah. And, you know, before we go on, I just want to say that I really enjoyed your talk and your viewpoints at Graham Sessions this year. I thought it was a breath of fresh air. It was really great. So thank you for putting in all the work that you did uh, to prepare for that. It was wonderful. Thank you. It was such an exciting experience to talk to all of those people from a different setting, right? Like normally I don't really move in private practice circles because of Mm -hmm. what I do is so different. So it was really nice to get some different perspectives. Yeah. Yeah. It was great. So now let's talk about the circle that you move in, right? Let's talk about physical therapy in the emergency department. So just for listeners who maybe might not be familiar uh, that PTs actually do that, can you explain um, how physical therapy in the emergency department came about, and then what what do you do? Yeah, I think that's a great question. So physical therapy in the emergency department has been in existence in the United States since the early 2000s. So it's certainly not new. I mean, there's research going back to the 90s. It's been happening in other countries for quite some time. So it's definitely not a new field. People seem to think that it's this like brand new concept, but really it's just, I I like to think it's just really starting to explode now. And hopefully my goal is that there's a physical therapist in every emergency department and urgent care in the United States, but that we're definitely a ways off from that. So I think some of the origins came about from a need. When you look at like the top diagnoses that come to the emergency department, always on that list is back pain, always on that list are falls, other musculoskeletal issues, like who better? I mean, why not? So 
people still ask all the time, what do you actually do in the emergency department? And I do the same thing you do. I provide assessments and treatments evaluations for patients in the emergency department. We manage their care. And part of what I do specifically would be I help people with non-opioid related pain management techniques. I help people with fall risk prevention, stratification, discharge recommendations, DME ordering, um, vertigo treatments, really anything you can imagine. Sometimes it's, it's as simple as a patient with a lot of medical comorbidities, just making sure their vitals are stable with mobility. Because I think we all know when we go to the hospital, they leave people in the bed and their vitals look fine in bed, but then as soon as that person starts moving, it's a completely different picture. So we just take that physical therapist lens and apply it to the exact same patients that are in the emergency department. And what what do physical therapists have to do to be a part of the emergency department in their hospital if they aren't already? Is there meaning, is there red tape you have to cut through administrative work? How does all of that work? So if someone's listening, they're like, I'm in a hospital and this sounds really interesting to me. What advice do you have? I would say the biggest piece of advice I can give you is find out what the pain points are in your hospital and what the mission is of your hospital and how physical therapy fits into that. So if, if the goal of your emergency department is to relieve bedlock because there are patients holding in the emergency department because there aren't enough beds in the hospital, how can physical therapy help with that? And then demonstrate that. We can expedite discharge by making quick and effective discharge recommendations. We can prevent bounce back. We can keep those patients from returning to the hospital because of the care that we provide. If your hospital has a goal of decreasing opioid use, you can show the literature about physical therapists helping to decrease opioid prescription in the emergency department. If your department is looking for efficiency and throughput time, physical therapists help decrease the number of images that are provided. So those are all things that you can easily show that physical therapy can provide in the emergency department. You just need to know like what really is your hospital trying to focus on and deliver and then be part of that mission. But if you want the longer story, I I wrote a book on this topic to help you kind of do that from the ground up. And where can people find the book? We'll we'll, we'll mention it at the end as well. But there it's it's complicated and it's each facility is different. So that's that's kind of the purpose behind that. But the short answer is find the pain points and fix them. Yeah, because it's not just going to the hospital administrators and saying, I would like to work in the emergency department. So put me in there. Right. Because you're going to get pushed back. Yeah. Yeah. They're going to be like, "Uh, no, we're trying to make things run this way. And you've never been there before. Like, what do you have to add? And that same concept of that people are always complaining about that no one knows what physical therapists do. You're going to find that even though you already work in a hospital, there are still people in the hospital that don't know what you do or what you have to offer. And we have to demonstrate that value. And so it means you, you need to go to your hospital administrators with a pitch. And be prepared. And maybe it involves a PowerPoint. Maybe it doesn't. But you want to go in as if you're pitching anyone, really. It's like you're going in and it's like a a pitch for a job interview, if you will. Yes, exactly. It's a business case. Mm -hmm. You're looking to add a business service line in an already existing large organization. It's not like if you're an independent practitioner and you're like, today, I'm going to start bringing coffee to all of my patients. I, I sign off on that initiative. It's not like that. Like this is a huge, 
huge situation in a large in institution. And the, the biggest issue is the emergency department too is the gate to the entire hospital system. And that gate has so many parameters and requirements and things that it has to run with that you really have to fit inside that system. You're not going to completely change that system, nor should we expect them to do that. So mm -hmm. we need to really fit in there, be prepared with what we can offer. Yeah, absolutely. Great advice. And now something that you had said at Graham sessions that I thought was said so well was that, you know, access to physical therapy services cannot continue or should not be a luxury. So can you yeah. talk a little bit more about that? I think that's probably the thing I say every time I talk to somebody about what I do. Physical therapist services should not be a luxury. And I know we need to be paid for what we do, but we are trying to transform society and society needs access to our care. The patients that come to the emergency department specifically, like we're the safety net. We're the ones that are seeing the people that don't have health insurance, the people that don't speak English, the people that have low health literacy, the people that have no time that work three jobs and can't be seen during clinic hours. We're seeing the people who are having are living in domestic violence situations, so couldn't miss, maybe have a home health therapist come to their house. We're seeing people in all different states. And we're the only people who really can provide that. So I think as physical therapists, we all need to start looking at how we can provide better access to care to our patients, no matter what our setting is. And I think the future of our profession really is in being where the patients are and making sure that we can get to them and they can get to us by decreasing barriers. Now, everybody has a different idea on what those barriers are and how to reduce them. But for me, the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to make sure that there are physical therapists at every safety net. And when you say every safety net, does that go beyond the emergency department? I really hope so. There are physical therapists who practice as emergency physical therapists in disaster relief. So if, you've, if you're in an area that's had a hurricane, I would love to be seeing physical therapists deployed to that area to help with that. And Megan Mitchell, Dr. Megan Mitchell is working on that. There are physical therapists on the sidelines. We know that, the, that mm -hmm. are there to help in those safety net situations. And there need to be physical therapists in, in other underrepresented areas. And we have therapists in schools. We, we are providing therapist services in many safety net areas, but I want to make sure that when you come to the emergency department, because there's nowhere else that you could possibly go, that there's a therapist there for you. Okay. And then that comes to my, to a follow-up question. And that is, they see you in the emergency department. Mm -hmm. They are, you know where I'm going with this. Yeah. They, they are discharged from the emergency department. Then what happens? Where do they go from there? Let's say they are someone with low health literacy. They do not have insurance. They do not have the finances. They do not have the transportation. They do not have a home. Yes. Where do those people go? What happens? So there are so many ways that we try to address that. And, and one of the things you're alluding to are social determinants of health and how that really impacts patients' outcomes. And the other great thing about the emergency department is it's a team sport. And it's a very lateral hierarchy. So we have so many people that can help with that. So we have a team of social workers that helps us screening those social determinants of health. So for example, if I have a patient who is unhoused, who comes in after being hit by a car, for example, which happens not irregularly, and now they have a broken ankle or they need a wheelchair. I, my job is to assess that patient, make sure they can access durable medical equipment that I can get it for them, whether that's they might have Medicaid and I can get it that way, or we might have to go through a donated equipment closet, or maybe the hospital donates that equipment. 
because the alternative is that patient can't leave, right? That patient has to stay in the hospital or they're going to go keep walking on a broken leg, which I have seen also. And then we're going to partner with our case management staff to see, can we get that patient with social work and case management, maybe a respite bed at a shelter where they can also receive home health care there? Because you have to have an address to have that home health care. But can we get that patient there where they can have medical care, they can have food, they can have shelter, and they have a safe place to rehabilitate for a short period of time? Then we have another team of people called patient navigators that come in and help those patients with their health literacy barriers. So they might make that next appointment for you. Have you ever been referred to like a specialist where they're like, you need to follow up with the spine clinic in six to eight weeks? And you're like, okay. And that feels hard to me, like making that phone call and waiting on hold and checking my calendar and mm-hmm. making sure my insurance works. Like if you, if you are unhoused, you don't maybe have a cell phone, you, you do have insurance coverage, but you really don't understand what that means. This team of people will call and make that appointment, set up a ride for you, an accessible ride, and make sure that there's somebody there that understands that you're going to need assistance, understanding what the plan of care is from that point on. So we try to capture those people and make sure that they're not lost. Our social work team will also help provide any food resources and medication vouchers as well to make sure that those patients get what they need. The problem is that's just one episode of care and that's just one temporary patch on a huge problem. So we're doing the best we can with that, but there really aren't that many places for me to send people. There is a clinic in our area that does serve people with no insurance or patients Mm -hmm. that are undocumented. And that's actually run by uh, a lot of students at the medical campus, including physical therapy students. So they can get physical therapy follow-up, but for my patients not in that area, there aren't a lot of options. So we try to do as much as we can for each patient. And the motto of that clinic, which I like to consider when I'm working with patients as well, is as much as possible for the patient and as little as possible to the patient. So the patient leaves well-supported, but not harmed in any way, as well mm-hmm. as like not over-medicalized, if that makes sense. Yeah, no, that makes sense. And and another um, addition to that, and it's something that Deborah Sheldon spoke about at the San Diego Pain Summit, is the need to have good interpreters. Yes, in mm-hmm. the emergency department, in the hospital system, or in which whatever system you you are at, um, which again is very very difficult, um, very difficult to find. I think you're lucky if you have one, but it makes a really big difference. And you can expand on that. I can. Uh, I actually am certified to speak Spanish, and so I do um, provide bilingual services at our hospital for our Spanish-speaking patients. And my perspective from that point of view is that I will read the note that was put in by like the physician team along with an interpreter. But then when I speak to the patient, they tell me things they didn't tell the interpreter or the physician because we are having this one-to-one conversation and they know that I can understand them and they feel much more comfortable sharing that information. And it also helps me ask better questions Mm -hmm. that maybe aren't easily interpreted. As well, in the past, I've had patients, um, we had an interpreter who was a Mandarin speaking interpreter, and I would say a particular thing, and then the interpreter would say a bunch of things, and obviously I don't speak Mandarin, so I wasn't exactly sure, but then she'd say, well, I just told the person that they needed to have a better attitude and sit up a little straighter, and I'm like, no, like none of, but I didn't, but like they've had a stroke, like none of that is what I need you to say to that patient. So it's difficult to know too, is that getting communicated? Mm -hmm. But we now have access to, we use um, video monitor interpreters so that the interpreter, if they can't be there in person, can actually still see the patient and engage. And that helps so much, especially when you think about interpretation and physical therapy, 
We just have to do it on the phone. And so much of what we do is visual and so much of what we do is hands-on. And so trying to do physical therapy on the phone really wasn't working, but this is more of a telehealth situation. And that's, I think, helped tremendously, Mm -hmm. but still that language barrier makes it very difficult to provide care. And I would say that we still struggle with cultural competence Mm -hmm. to be able to provide care in a very culturally sensitive and appropriate way. Yeah. Yeah. And how... A quick question. How long are sessions, physical therapy mm. sessions in the emergency department? Is it a triage? You're there for 10, 15 minutes. Do you have extra time? How does that work? What is the practical part? That's a great question. And I would say probably there are physical therapists that practice in emergency departments that might disagree with me about that. and might have a different experience, but my goal for the patient is for them to leave the emergency department. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. And I know that that sounds kind of terrible, but my goal is for them to leave as successfully and happily as possible, but they mm-hmm. need to leave. Like this is a train station. It's not a, a destination. So they need to get out one way or the other. So I, I might need that person to go to rehab. I might need that person to go to home health. I might need them to have outpatient therapy. They might not need anything from me, or they might just need a walker to be able to go home with. So in order to get that person really onto the next train, I will take as much time as it takes. Mm-hmm. If it takes 15 minutes and I'm like, Hey, this isn't a physical therapy issue. Like good luck. Everything looks great. Then it takes 15 minutes. I had a patient this last week with a horizontal canal BPPV issue. It took 90 minutes. Mm-hmm. I've gone back and seen a patient four times in one day, but that patient walked out at the end of the day. I think the longest I've ever spent with one patient in one day was three hours. And it, but it gets the goal achieved. That patient mm-hmm. didn't have to be admitted to the hospital. That person ended up needing extensive equipment, extensive home support, extensive family training. But all of those pieces took a lot to coordinate and a lot of back and forth and being in the room and out of the room. But the goal was achieved and that patient was able to leave successfully. Mm-hmm. So it, just like everything else, it depends. It depends. Depends. On, depends on what the it depends on what the patient needs. And the time that you, that in the time, physical time that you have. Yes. And obviously if there are like 10 patients waiting, then I have to really think about that too, right? Like if Mm -hmm. I go into a room and it's clear to me, this patient cannot go home in 10 minutes, I'm not going to spend an hour long session intervening with that patient. If I know the next patient might be able to discharge, Mm -hmm. I'm going to see that patient briefly. I'm going to make my recommendations for maybe subacute rehab placement. And then I'm going to put them on the list for further intervention at another time. But that's part of that triaging piece that you alluded to that we Mm -hmm. still have to see the patients with the greatest needs that we can impact the most quickly to in order to alleviate bed space and give people the care that they need. If somebody's screaming in the next day and the person next to me like might have a vertigo that needs a little time to settle, I'm going to go help the person who's screaming first Mm -hmm. and let that other person like be in a low stim environment for a little while. So we kind of have to set things up in a way that flows best for the patients and best for the department. But you might have multiple patients at the same time as well, which is different from other settings. Sure. There's no predictability. And is there a standing order for physical therapy by a physician? Because um, not every state has true direct access, right? right? So some states it's just an eval and that's it. So yeah. you can't do any treating. So in the emergency department, is there a standing order for physical therapy? How does that work? 
I'm going to guess that it probably works differently in every hospital. Mm -hmm. Our, our providers will put in orders. I will ask providers for orders. Um, so I will triage all the patients in the emergency department if they haven't put in orders, but I think they need to, we'll have a conversation about that and we'll put those orders in. And then they, part of the other reason we like having those orders put in is that it helps us triage as well, because they'll kind of check a category, musculoskeletal placement of vestibular. So we know what Mm -hmm. to be prepared for and how to Mm -hmm. stratify and who to send to that room. But generally we do have like orders or uh, orders feels like the wrong word, like consults. Mm-hmm. is maybe the, the more correct word, but we also now have three full-time PTs in our emergency department at any time. And we have an area that's like a super track or like a more like an urgent care type area. And those patients will more or less after they've been triaged briefly be discharged to physical therapy. So they're mm-hmm. no longer the physician's patient, they're our patient. And then we'll manage their care from that point on. And then in other areas, we're really more a part of a consultant, you know, consultant role where we'll give our input and then kind of sign that patient back over to the PA, the NP or the physician. Got it. And are there, sorry for all these nitty gritty questions, but I think it's, I think it's good. I think people like it gives them a better idea as to what physical therapists in the emergency department do. Um, Is there a physical therapist there 24 seven? Are people, are PTs working the night shift like nurses and physicians? At this time, I don't know of any programs where that's happening. And yeah. I usually joke, like nobody wants to do physical therapy at two o'clock in the morning, especially right. the physical therapist. So right. right now I don't know of any programs that are doing that. There are PTs that are staying late till 1030 at night in some cases that kind of mm-hmm. split the day and they're there as long as they can be. Mm-hmm. In some cases, it doesn't make a lot of sense to have a PT overnight because if your case management staff isn't available to make referrals to somebody, it doesn't make a difference. Health, it doesn't yeah. really expedite things tremendously. Yeah. Yeah. Or do I want to evaluate a frail elderly patient with dementia for home safety at two o'clock in the morning? Or are they sundowned and exhausted and delirious? Like it's maybe not the best time. I want to see them at their best, not make decisions at their worst, and then have to come back at 9 a.m. when when they're clear and happy and their family's present and they're ready to go. Right. But that being said, there are patients we could probably serve at night, including those coming in with musculoskeletal pain or vertigo Mm -hmm. issues. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But I don't know right now that at least specific to my facility that the data supports that. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Like I said, sorry for the like nitty gritty questions, but these are things that I've wondered. And if I'm wondering them, then I have to assume other people are wondering that. As I think well. that makes sense too, because there, we have so many questions about how the people practice and how this is even feasible. And, and that's a good mm-hmm. way to kind of explain the system. Yeah. And something else that you had mentioned at Graham sessions, I don't think it was in necessarily in the opening, uh, the opening speech that you gave, but I think as questions came through was this idea of upstream thinking to improve Mm -hmm. access to care. So can you, would you mind expanding upon that and where the role of physical therapy fits? So upstream is, is a concept that I think a lot of people are familiar with, but the story that goes along with that is you're sitting by a river and there are children like drowning in the river. And you jump in and you get the kid out and you're like, oh, wow, we saved that one. But then more kids start coming down the stream. And so then you and your friend are like jumping in the water and trying to save all the kids. And at one point your friend jumps out and you're like, where are you going? And the friend says, I'm going upstream to find out who's throwing the kids in the water. So trying to get upstream to stop the problem rather than having it be a reactionary experience. And I think our healthcare system really is downstream, right? Mm -hmm. And if you're in the emergency department, you're at the bottom of the waterfall. Like we're catching people after they've gone off the cliff. So I like to think that having a physical therapist in the emergency department is really 
a little bit of being upstream at the bottom of the waterfall. And can I help get these people back up to the top before they fall again? Are we able to prevent that next fall? Are we able to get that person to rehab so they don't end up with a subdural? Can I get this person with back pain on the path they need to be on rather than on the MRI injection, Mm -hmm. you know, opioid surgery path. So I think it's one way to like, look at how can we serve patients in a more innovative and holistic way in a really emergent and crisis space. But as physical therapists as a whole, I really feel like we need to get upstream and that's an area where we're failing as a profession. And it's hard because it's really hard to prove that you are the thing keeping somebody out of the waterfall. Mm -hmm. It's hard to show something didn't happen. Like if you and I go swimming and I'm like, Hey, you know, Karen didn't go off the waterfall. It's all because of me. Then somebody's like, well, you know, no, she just was swimming on her own maybe. And maybe that's the case. But I think physical therapists have the opportunity and the profound privilege to really help change the healthcare system. We're just not there yet. And what does that look like for you? Preventative care. I mean, do we have that now? We didn't, we, we really don't. No. Right. We don't. And we also really practice payer centered care and not patient centered care. And I would love to see this more primary care model, this like collaborative care model where patients are getting the care that they need to actually be healthy and well and not be sick. Yeah. And I think we can do that. I think we have the, I think we're the people that have the skill set to do that. We know how to do disease surveillance. We know how to help people adopt healthy habits. We know how to encourage people to exercise. We know how to like really change the trajectory of so many different diseases that result from metabolic health. As an example, I just mm-hmm. think we're, we're, we're the best to do that injury prevention, fitness optimization, like workplace health. Like there's so many spaces that we can be in that we're not. And I think the crux of it is how do we get compensated for that work so that we can actually provide it? And mm-hmm. how do we get the rest of the healthcare system to move that way as well? Because I think if it's us alone, not going to happen, it's not going to happen. Mm-hmm. And I think we need to stop looking at healthcare as silos and stop looking at ourselves as I'm an inpatient therapist. I'm an outpatient therapist. Like we need to get the walls out of what we do and, and get where the patients are. Yeah. And, and that, I think that also involves other professions. So if it's um, partnering with some local docs in your town, um, depending on the size of your town, I'm in New York City. So the local docs are, it's a lot. Yeah, um, you've got a few resources. There's there's a few. Um, but do you think that is a once a year physical therapy checkup? Because, you know, you hear pros and cons on that once a year physical therapy checkup? Is that necessary or not necessary? Do you feel like that's something that would be able to catch things for lack of better way of putting it? I think in some cases, yes. Um, But do I think that like on its own is going to really add a lot of value? Probably not. Mm -hmm. Uh, Especially if you're doing okay. Like if, I mean, if I go in and I get my physical therapy checkup tomorrow, they're going to be like, wow, your traps are kind of tight and like your hip mobility is a little limited. You need to work on that, but it looks like your exercise program's okay. And that'll, I I would imagine would be probably kind of the most that would happen. And I might get like a little handout about my sleep habits and nutrition and things like that. But I think 
more than a once a year visit, we need relationship building mm-hmm. and goal setting. I think that everybody should have goals throughout that year. So I don't think the once a year physical, because I do that with my physician too, right? And she makes yeah, sure yeah, I'm not so dying. And she says, things are fine. She's like, you look great. I'll see you in a year. But what, what would happen if we set checkpoints? And she said, I want to see that, you know, you're like mental health is here at this point and that you're, you check in and your exercise is here. Like a physical therapist, I think could provide that with that, that relationship building. Also, then, you know, because we have this ongoing relationship and you've set a goal, maybe not to have headaches, for, for example, that when you have a headache, we have a plan of care in place and you can come and see me and I'll be ready for you because I'll mm-hmm. know what your normal is. I'll know what you're struggling with and I'll know what you're aiming for. And then you and I can treat the immediate problem discuss the factors that probably led to that exacerbation, get you back on track and then continue to check in with you instead of a year later, you coming back to see me and seeing like, well, you know, my headaches aren't any better. I still had headaches this year. And me saying, well, your traps are still tied and you probably need more sleep and you need to look at your stress. Like none of that is helpful. Right. If we're letting, if we're expecting people to manage themselves alone, we're not really providing care. We're just providing validation and suggestions. Yeah. And so it, it, comes down to here are your goals and it doesn't mean I need to see you three times a week for six weeks. Absolutely not. I would d- definitely not. You know, no. it may be a whatever you decide once a month or once a quarter, every six months, something like that. So I don't want therapists hearing that to think, well, I don't have time to see the people I'm seeing no. now. How am I no, supposed to see like all that. these people? It's not like that. Yeah. And that would be a different care model, right? Than somebody who's maybe injured or post-operative or, but also Karen, like if these are your patients and they come to the emergency department, then I can follow up with you and be like, Karen, your patient came in because they fell. And -hmm. then you can immediately reach out and be like, oh, like what are the factors that led up to the fall? And I can say, Hey, you know, like their hip strength looked really impaired. I'm concerned about their vision. They weren't able to do a task. Like what is that compared to their baseline? And you hopefully have a cognitive baseline, a mobility baseline, some mm-hmm. fall risk measures that you've been tracking on this patient for some time. Right. You know what their normal lab values are. Hopefully, you know what their bone density is if, if it's somebody who's been following for a while, because that would be a surveillance item that we could provide to make sure that people are healthier. So I, I think that that would be a much more collaborative model that I would love to see if I were, you know, if I were the director of the world. Yeah. Well, if only, if only. When so, magic happens. Yes. So as we start to wrap things up, what are the big takeaways that you want the listeners to come away with from our discussion today? There is such a need for your services. And I know that you probably feel overwhelmed, like completely overwhelmed by the number of people that you have to manage already. And one, there are things that you can do to help with that. One is please don't discourage people from becoming a physical therapist. Been seeing a lot of that lately. Mm-hmm. Don't become a PT. It's not worth it. It's so profoundly worth it. People need you. People are coming to the emergency department that don't need to be. I am the most expensive physical therapy visit in the country because the patients have to pay for the emergency right. department and the physical therapy. Right. You're needed. And you're probably maybe not needed in the way you're providing care now. We need to get outside of the walls. We need to get outside of the box and we need to be where our patients are so that maybe I don't have to have this job, that we aren't having patients seeing emergency services for things that PTs in the community, I just totally lost my voice. PTs in the community could be providing. 
Mm -hmm. So I think we all need to kind of look at where we are as a profession and start to innovate and grow and like change with the way that our patients are changing, change with the way our society is changing, consider innovative models and stop siloing ourselves a little bit. Great. Great wrap up. Thank you. And now, uh, before I ask you the final question that I ask everyone, where can people find you? Where can they get your book? Go ahead. So we have a website, www.theeddpt.com. You can find us on Twitter, YouTube, Instagram at the EDDPT. Our book is called Top of Scope, the Emergency Department Physical Therapist Handbook. It's available for you on Amazon. It comes very quickly. Um, I hope it's helpful to you. If you provide any patient care, I think you will get some value from it. Or if you're trying to do any kind of quality improvement initiative within a big facility, it's a great blueprint for that. You would just sub in whatever you're working on, whether that's maternal health or a concussion program, and just use it within the same framework. I think it would also add some value. Excellent. We'll have all the links for that at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com. So one click will take you to uh, Rebecca's book and to all of her social media as well. All right. So last question. And so when I ask everyone, what advice would you give to your 20 year old self? I think two pieces. The first is just like, be confident and happy with who you are. Like I was so nervous when I was 20 years old and really just didn't know who I was or what value I had to offer. And I was so like overwrought with other people's expectations of me that I think I lost a lot of joy and I wasted a lot of time not being myself and not really finding who I am now. And the second piece would be, it's okay to pivot. Like I was so sure I was going to go to law school. I was going to become a lawyer. I was going to, you know, like be the next like criminal defense attorney to the stars and a, like weird turn of events, like really changed my life in a completely different direction. And I think I'm really where I'm meant to be, but it took a while to let go of who I thought I should be so that I could become who I want to be. So those are the two things like trust yourself, celebrate yourself, and then don't be afraid to pivot no matter what stage of life you're in. Excellent advice. I'm going to take that to heart. I feel like you were just speaking to me there. So thank you so much. And Rebecca, thanks so much for coming on the podcast and taking the time out to talk to me and all of our listeners. Thank you so much. And everyone, thank you so much for listening. Have a great couple of days and stay healthy, wealthy, and smart. Thanks for listening. And don't forget to leave us your questions and comments at podcast.healthywealthysmart.com.